Amen. Well, it is good to be able to say finally, take your Bibles and open with me this morning to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to finally make our way through the 8th chapter of the book of Daniel. Now, this sermon has been sitting in my mind and sitting on my iPad for several, several weeks now, and I have been itching to get it out. And so I am very, very excited to be able to finally get to this text this morning. And so what we're going to see this morning is that God knows all and is over all. Now here Daniel is encouraging his readers by reminding them that God knows all things and is over all things. And in the text this morning, we're going to see two evidences that God knows all things and is over all things. Now, before we jump into the text this morning, let me again caution us. This is a very lengthy text with a lot of information. And as a matter of fact, you're going to find me sitting back here behind this podium for a change, looking more intently at my notes that I don't get some of these dates and details mixed up for you because I want to give you accurate and correct information. But I also want you to remember that this is a prophecy that has already found its fulfillment in the history of Israel that may, that may with a question mark, also point to future events occurring at the end of the age. Let me just kind of pause there for a minute and make sure we understand what I'm saying. This prophecy that Daniel records in chapter 8 is different from the prophecy we saw in Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 7, Daniel was certainly speaking of things that were going to occur at the end of the age, the second coming of Christ. Daniel chapter 8 is different. Daniel chapter 8 is clear in its interpretation because it's interpreted by the angel Gabriel. So we know exactly when these events are going to be fulfilled. And spoiler alert, they've already been fulfilled, right? This has happened and been fulfilled now in the past. However... We're going to see that there are some really close parallels between the main characters here and the events that occur here and what is likely to transpire at the end of the age. So these events that we're going to look at this morning have already been fulfilled. However, they do likely point us or foreshadow for us what's going to come at the end of the age. Now let me also pause and remind us of what we have been seeing throughout the entire book of Daniel because just when we get to the prophecy section it doesn't mean that the goal or the main emphasis of Daniel has changed. God is sovereign. Amen. God is sovereign. Again and again and again, Daniel is proving to us that God is sovereign. So no matter what text we're in, no matter what chapter we're in in the book of Daniel, the ultimate theme of the entire book is that God is sovereign. And so we don't come away from these passages or these prophecies having some sort of a road map as to what's going to occur so that we can prepare ourselves for the end of events. Instead, we ought to come away from these prophecies remembering God is sovereign. And here's why that's so important. If God has it all figured out, we don't have to worry about it. Amen? Listen, we just got back from Florida, and on the way to Florida, guess what question I heard from my kids over and over and over again? Are we there yet? How much longer? When are we going to eat? When are we going to do this? When are we going to get there? Here's what they forgot to remember. Daddy had it all under control, right? Leave me alone. 
We'll get there when we get there, right? We'll eat when I'm hungry, right? We'll, we'll stop when I want to stop. We will make progress as we make progress, but I, who am driving, have it all figured out, right? You don't need to worry about the details. I know them. I'm in control. Now, the reality is I'm not in control like I want to be, right? We ran into traffic. We had transmission problems on the way home. I'm not sovereign over even a trip to Florida, but God is sovereign, amen? So we don't have to worry about the details, We can let God figure those things out as God lets us in on the plan when he's ready to. Amen? And so as we come away from this, we're going to conclude ultimately that God is sovereign. Luke, do me a favor. Go find me some kind of water back there because I can already tell this is going to get bad. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, So I came back from Florida, a little bit of a head cold. And uh, I'm over it. I'm doing well. I took a COVID test. I'm not, I'm, we got no COVID going on, but we got some kind of a cold going on in our house. And so this is the first time I have talked at length in a while. And so my throat is going to be having some fun here momentarily. So anyway, as we jump into Daniel chapter 8, though, I want to give you a couple of things that I think are really helpful as we begin. First of all, remember back in the book of Daniel, back in chapter 2, verse 4, Daniel did something really, really interesting. He switched languages from Hebrew to Aramaic. Chapter 1 of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew, meant for the nation of Israel. But then when he gets to chapter 2, verse 4, he begins to speak in Aramaic. And he writes all of chapter 2, verse 4 through the end of chapter 7 in Aramaic, helping us see that what God was showing Daniel in those chapters, Daniel wanted those things to be known by the world at large, not just Israel. But in chapter 8, Daniel switches back to Hebrew. And so this prophecy is meant for the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, the rest of the book of Daniel is going to be written in Hebrew, helping us see that these are things that God wants Israel to know. And so we see clearly in this text that God is speaking to the Jews through Daniel to warn them and to prepare them for a time of great persecution that was going to come about almost 400 years after the giving of this prophecy itself. And so as God unfolds this prophecy for Daniel, we are going to see proof that God is over all and that God knows all. And so let's look at the text together. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 14. We'll pray and then we'll begin to make our way through the text this morning. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel that after which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, where, and excuse me, and, I, and as I saw in the vision, I was at the Ulai Canal. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. In verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. 
And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great <coughs> excuse me, as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together, and with the regular burnt offering because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Thank you, Luke. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Let me find my place again. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary to the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this text, uh, Lord, we are filled with question marks. Lord, so many things here that, that we don't fully comprehend and understand. Lord, that makes us very, very grateful that in the second half of this chapter, you interpret much of this for us so that we can sort of fill in the blanks. Lord, I pray that as we make our way through this text, that yes, we would learn, we would understand better what this text is, is teaching us what it means. But Lord, I also pray that we would come away from this text further in awe of your sovereignty. Lord, more in, 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 in just pure faith and trust in your sovereignty because we see again and again that you are over all things and you know all things. Lord, help that to drive us to trust you in the little and in the big things that we face in our life. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, how do we know that God is over all and knows all? Well, first of all, God is able to accurately detail future events. Excuse me. Now, in verse 1, we're going to see that this vision came to Daniel two years after the vision of chapter 7. So just kind of remember what's going on in the book of Daniel. Remember that Daniel is taken captive in chapter 1, and Daniel spends most of his adult life in Babylon, in Babylonian captivity. He is used by God in a mighty, mighty way again and again to prove that God is sovereign over all things. And then at the end of chapter 4, we end chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar, remember, having lost his mind, run out into the wilderness for a period of seven years, only to then come back into the kingdom, have his kingdom restored, and then Nebuchadnezzar dies and is gone from the scene. That's the end of chapter 4. In chapter 5, we pick up with the reign of Belshazzar, 
which is likely Nebuchadnezzar's grandson or great-grandson. So time has passed, in other words, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And chapter 5, remember, is the last night of Belshazzar's reign because as he is throwing this massive party, right, Persia is literally outside the walls digging in and swimming under the wall through the canal so that they can overtake the kingdom and Babylon will fall on the night of chapter 5. Belshazzar will die. And remember, God is going to use Daniel to predict it all as God writes on the wall in the midst of the party. I know it's been a while, but don't forget how incredible that had to be. Amen? Like there you are throwing this massive inappropriate party and God shows up not in form but in hand and writes on the wall. It is over basically, right? And so Daniel, remember, comes in and he interprets that. So the visions of chapter 7 and 8, they happen in between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so we know that this is two years after what God said in chapter 7. Two years later, Daniel has this vision, again, somewhere before the fall of Babylon in chapter 5, but after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what we're going to notice in this vision and its interpretation is the extreme accuracy with which these events are described, even though these events will not begin for several years and are 400 years from actually concluding. That's what we're going to notice in these first 14 verses. God tells Daniel exactly what's going to happen in the future in unbelievably great detail. Every detail is accurate. Every detail is unbelievably accurate. And we're going to come away knowing without doubt God knows all things and is over all things. Amen? So for this vision, notice this vision is different than chapter 7. In chapter 7, Daniel was asleep. He had a dream. In chapter 8, Daniel has what we think of as an actual vision. He's awake. And all of a sudden, something comes over him and he's transported excuse me, in his mind from Babylon to the city of Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. He's there on the banks of the Ulai Canal in vision, not physically, but in vision he's there. And as he's there on the banks, he begins to see something on the banks of the canal. Again, notice the imagery of what he sees in verse 3. He says, I raised my eyes and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but notice, one was higher than the other. And the higher horn was the horn that came up last. And then notice verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward, and northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and became great. Now again, Notice the accuracy of this prophecy fulfilled in actual history. Now, we're told in verse 20 that this was the Medo-Persian Empire. I'm going to follow my notes so that I don't get confused here. So just listen as this accuracy is, is, is kind of pointed out. The Media and the Persian Empire were comprised of two kingdoms. Media was the stronger empire at first. However, under the rule of Cyrus, the Persian Empire became the stronger of the two empires and developed into the Medo-Persian Persian Empire. So there's your two horns, right? The Mede and the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire came up last. It was weaker at first, 
but it grew higher than the second horn. It became the greater empire. As the Medo Empire grew, it conquered to the west. This is historically accurate. This is true. It first of all conquered Babylon. Daniel chapter 5. It conquered Syria, Asia Minor, and it invaded parts of Greece all to the west. It grew to the north. It conquered Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea region. It conquered to the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. Again, this is what historically happened. And so these are all the things that they were able to conquer. As the army went into battle, get this, the ruler of the empire, the Persian empire, he carried the golden head of a ram to symbolize its power. And this empire grew to be the largest empire the world had known up to that point so that no other beasts could stand before them. Now again, Daniel's not telling you what happened. Daniel is prophesying about what is going to happen. This is written with the accuracy of someone describing something that had already taken place. So much so that liberal scholars don't believe Daniel is actually prophesying here. They believe someone else is writing using Daniel's name because they argue it can't be that accurate. No one could know all these details. It's impossible unless God's sovereign. Amen? Unless God knows all things and is over all things. And I love, by the way, the little details of God. I love how God pictures this for Daniel as a ram because God knows that the Persian king is going to march into battle with a golden ram in front of him to symbolize his power. That is awesome. Amen? And so God is demonstrating that he knows all and is over all. And remember, God was telling this to Daniel years before it would happen. But then in verse 5, notice the imagery and the vision begins to transform. It begins to change. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at the ram in his powerful wrath. I saw him close, uh, excuse me, I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against the ram and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now, again, notice the accuracy of this vision. Now, we're told in verse 21 that the goat was the empire of Greece, with its first horn being the first great king, Alexander the Great. In 334 BC, Alexander the Great led Greece from the west to first attack the, Earth, the Persian Empire. It took just three years for Alexander to fully conquer Persia and quickly most of the known world of that day. He was flying as if he was not touching the ground. That's a cool detail, amen? Our God is awesome, amen? That, that, that's a cool detail. It took just three years. Alexander also hated Persia because remember, when the Persian Empire was, was moving forward, it tried to conquer Greece but failed. Right? It, it went into the area of Greece, and so the Greece Empire hated the Persian Empire. And so when Persia came, excuse me, when the Greece and Alexander came at Persia, they came at them with great rage, as was, as was described 
in this vision. However, at the height of his power, you know this historically, Alexander the Great suddenly died on June the 13th, 323 B.C. His kingdom was eventually divided into four parts after his sons were murdered, and it was given over to four of his military leaders, the four small horns of verse 8. Again, can we not just say, wow? This is not someone telling you what had happened. This is someone telling you what is going to happen. And what I love is when you get to verse 27 and you see Daniel's response, Daniel is confused. Daniel has no clue what any of this means. Daniel is just giving us information that God is going to declare to him in verses 15 through 27. But even at the end of it, Daniel's still going to say, I, 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 I really don't know what's happening. Because Daniel hadn't seen it, Daniel hadn't lived it, Daniel's not going to see it. Daniel's only going to get to tell about it so that future people would know that God is sovereign. Now, in verse 9, the, the, the vision begins to change and the vision begins to get a little bit more dis, uh, discouraging for us. In verse 9, we see that the latter one of the four horns became great, greater than the rest, and he grew toward the south, the east, and even toward the glorious land, which is Jerusalem. Look at what it says in verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That's a way of speaking of Jerusalem. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now that does not mean in verse 10 that it somehow conquered angels and things of that nature. But it began to attack the people of God, the saints of God. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. That's a reference to God. And so this kingdom, this king grew great, so much so that he thought he was as good as God. And so the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. The place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking to another holy one who said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled under feet? And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Now, truth would be thrown to the ground. All that the little horn does is going to prosper. All notice in verse 23 as we get there in a minute. All because of the sins of the saints. In other words, what's taking place here is God is judging the nation of Israel. Just like we saw God do with Babylon. Just like we later see God do with Assyria. Right? This is God judging the nation of Israel. We just get an inside glimpse at how awful the judgment is going to be but it's all because Israel has continued to sin against God now we'll get to the interpretation in a moment but again I want you to notice the accuracy so the four horns are four kings that will come up after Alexander the Great after some time passes towards the end of that kingdom one of those horns would become great and he would overtake all the other kingdoms all the other horns 
This horn will hate the Jews and persecute them greatly, even stopping worship in the temple. Now, it's it's key to remember and know this little horn is not the same little horn of chapter 7. Let me say that again. Chapter 7's little horn was the Antichrist. This is not the same little horn. This is the historical figure of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus began his rule historically in 175 BC. Listen to the description of him from history. He was a harsh king and he was particularly harsh towards the Jews. In 170 BC, he killed the high priest and continued his persecution by killing thousands of Jews. He forbid worship in the temple or following the law, and anyone found guilty of worshiping or obeying the law was put to death. In 167 BC, he stopped offerings in the temple, he tore down the altar, and he built another altar in its place to Zeus, where he offered a pig in the temple to the false god of Zeus also known as the transgression that makes desolate in verse 13. In verse 14, we're told that this persecution would last 2,300 days, likely the period from when the high priest was murdered in 170 BC and the temple was then rededicated in December of 164 BC after the death of Antiochus. You say, do you memorize all that? No, it's all written down right here. I'm reading this so I don't mess it up. Amen? And so a uh, couple of weeks, it's been almost a month ago, Betty Lou, number two, comes to me and says, what does the 2,300 days mean in chapter 8? And my response was, we'll get there. It's way too much to go into right now. Amen? Now you know why. Way too much to try to figure out in a five-minute conversation. <clears throat> this is incredible. But again, notice the accuracy. We'll get to the details of it and we'll get to the interpretation of it. But just again, sit back and notice how incredible our God is. He was able to let Daniel know all that was going to transpire so that Daniel could write this down and seal it up and give it to those who will need to be reminded during that time period that God is still sovereign. What do you need to know when you're in the midst of persecution, when the temple has been closed, when the altar has been desecrated? What do you need to know when persecution is raging and people are dying, people that follow God are losing their lives? What do you need to be reminded of? You need to be reminded that God is sovereign. That for some reason, unbeknownst to us, God is allowing these things to happen. We see it was because of the sins of the nation of Israel again. But at the end of the day, we need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Amen? We need to understand that God is still in control. And what I want us to remember and what I want us to just pause for a minute and just marvel at is that this prophecy was given 400 years prior to these events. And how is that possible unless God knows all and is over all? And what I want to encourage you with this morning, because this is discouraging prophecy, amen? <laughs> Daniel's going to say at the end of this, I was sick for days. What I want to encourage you with is that the same God who knew all and knows all then is the same God who knows all now. The same God that was sovereign then is the same God that is sovereign now. And by the way, he is our God. Amen? 
We serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is our God. He is the Ancient of Days. He knows all things and He is over all things. We know that because He is able to accurately detail future events. And then secondly, God is able to accurately explain future events. Let's pick up now in verse 15. It says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eli, and, I, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. Don't you think Gabriel is probably thinking, Daniel, would you just stay on your feet? You've done fallen twice now. Let's get the show on the road, right? (laughs) Daniel continues to pass out before the angel. Verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the first, excuse me, is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he even, excuse me, he he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So in verse 15, Daniel sees someone standing before him with the appearance of a man. Turns out it's the angel Gabriel. As Daniel is looking at that man, that figure of a man, a voice of a man comes from the canal and commands angel Gabriel to tell Daniel what the vision meant. So obviously if that voice is commanding Gabriel, most likely that's the voice of God telling Gabriel to let Daniel know the interpretation of the vision. Now we can joke about Daniel, but we can't really fault Daniel. Most people, when they come in contact with an angel, their first response is to fall, right? They, they, they sort of pass out in fear and in awe. They bow in worship. And now that you know that not only is Gabriel speaking, but God's voice is over there coming from the canal, Daniel does the right thing. He hits the ground. And then as Daniel is raised back up, Gabriel begins to speak. At that point, it appears that Daniel just sort of faints from just being completely and totally overwhelmed. Finally, Gabriel raises Daniel up and says, all right, let's steady yourself. Here's some orange juice. Let's let's get through this thing, all right? And then he finally is able to begin giving the interpretation of the vision in verse 18. Now, I mean, excuse me, in verse 19. Now, Now, what is most difficult about this interpretation is actually the first part of the interpretation. 
the question is, what does Gabriel mean by the designations of time? The time of the end in verse 17, latter end of the indignation, verse 19, followed then by the phrase, the appointed time of the end in verse 19. Now, we are tempted to immediately assign this to the end of the age, especially following the vision of chapter 7. When we read this, most naturally, we immediately think, This has to be talking about the second coming of Christ, the end of the age. However, as we've already seen, this vision speaks to a very real and specific time in the history of Israel that will come about 400 years after this vision was given. As a matter of fact, verses 20 and 21 inform us clearly that this vision was given concerning the empires of the Medo-Persian and Greece. Therefore, it is more probable that this vision was given for that specific time in Israel's future. The latter end of the indignation, then, would refer to the end of Antiochus' reign of terror over the Jews. And so what I am saying is that this prophecy has already found its fulfillment in history. And that when Antiochus died and the temple was rededicated in 164, this prophecy was then fulfilled. However, with all that being said, it is also true that Antiochus certainly had characteristics that foreshadowed the Antichrist and the coming tribulation at the end of the age. Thus, the specifics given in this interpretation are for the time of Antiochus, but they may also very well point to a greater time of tribulation that is coming for God's people. Let let me clarify what I mean. What I mean is that all the specifics we see in Daniel chapter 8 are for the time in Israel's history when Antiochus will reign over them in terror. That's the tribulation and the persecution that Daniel chapter 8 is giving the specifics on. But... When you compare Antiochus and the characteristics he has to the characteristics of the Antichrist we know who is going to come, there's a lot of similarities. When you compare this tribulation and persecution with the great tribulation described in in Matthew, Mark, and at the end of Revelation, there's a lot of similarities. Most likely what God is doing is he is preparing the nation of Israel for a very real coming persecution that's going to happen 400 years from the time of this vision. But he is also helping us see some parallels that we can learn from concerning the great tribulation to come. Now, that means that this is not going to give us details about the great tribulation to come. The details are for the period of persecution that's coming in Israel's history that, remember, has already happened. It's our past. It was their future. It is now our past. Amen? Following that? But at the end of this, we're going to see some things that I think we can pull out of this for application that will help us as we think towards the great tribulation to come. So, All that being said, we've already seen that verses 20 through 22 inform us that the ram was the Medo-Persian empire while the goat was Greece. The great horn of the goat was the first king Alexander the Great, and the four horns that rise after him are not as powerful or as awe-inspiring as he was. However, verse 23 is where we begin to see the information about the rise of Antiochus from one of those kingdoms. And I want you to notice the details that are given in verse 23. So look in your Bibles, jump back into verse 23, and I want you to notice some of the details given. 
First of all, notice that this will happen when the transgressors have reached their limit. In other words, when Israel's sin had become too great for God to ignore. Now, we see this all throughout Israel's history. God gives them grace and grace and grace and grace until the sin reaches a point that God can no longer ignore it and grace is no longer extended. And instead, God brings about judgment, which is a part of his grace, to turn Israel back to him. Right? And so we see that in verse 23 when This happens when the transgressors have reached their limit. Notice that then a king of bold face will arise. This describes someone who is angry, who is hateful, and who is harsh. Notice the description. It's one who understands riddles. Again, this is one of those pieces of information that is very, very precise. That that, that only God could give. This This is why Liberal scholars say Daniel could not have written this beforehand. This had to be given afterwards because that is too precise of information. Because it turns out that Antiochus, who this is referring to, actually rose to power because of flattery and bribery. The the word he understands riddle, it means that he was cunning. He was deceitful. He He was wise, but with evil intent. And that's exactly how Antiochus rose to power. Notice that his power will be great, but it will not be by his own power. In other words, he will receive his power from Satan himself, which is why he treated God's people more harshly than any other people. He will cause fear and destruction, and he will succeed in what he does. He will destroy mighty men and the people of God. He will grow in his deceit, notice, and he will think himself great, ultimately causing him to challenge God. The prince of princes, which is God the Father. But what do you think is going to happen when he decides that he's big enough to go against God? Well, we know what's going to happen, amen? He's going to lose. And he's going to lose badly. And so it says that he will die, but not by a human hand. In other words, Antiochus is going to be taken out by none other than God the Father. Amen? And again... Notice the accuracy of all these things, but notice how God is able to explain why these things and how these things all come to pass. And so in verse 26, Daniel is assured then that this vision is true, but it is not for his day. He is to seal it up for those many days from now who will need to be reminded again that God is in control. So again, this vision has already been fulfilled. What was Israel's future when this vision was given to Daniel is now our past. However, we do see several parallels between Antiochus and the Antichrist, the great persecution that Israel faced and the great tribulation to come. Therefore, here's what I want us to remember. When persecution on any level comes whether it's a great persecution like we see described here, whether it's the great tribulation to come, or whether it is the common persecution that you and I face on a daily basis, right? Persecution on any level. Here's what I want you to remember. God is in control. Amen? God is in control. God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. God is still in control. He knows all. He sees all. He is over all. Amen? If we will remember that, then we will be able to endure whatever the persecution is. 
whether it's huge and unimaginable or whether it's just the common difficulties and persecutions that we face. In other words, remember God is sovereign. And then I want you to focus with me now on verse 27 because here is where I want us to pull out a little more of our application of how do we respond to this text then. Look with what we see in verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Notice three responses that Daniel has here. First of all, Daniel was overcome and physically sick as he mourned what was to come in Israel's future. Daniel literally says, I I laid sick in the bed for days. And, And so here's what I want us to remember. It is perfectly natural for the thoughts of great persecution to come or any persecution for that matter to cause us to mourn what will be and even be sickened by what will occur. When we hear the details of the great tribulation to come, when we hear the details of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world enduring unimaginable persecution to us, it is perfectly natural for that to cause us to be broken, saddened, literally physically sickened by the details of the persecution. That's a normal response, amen? Responding that way does not mean that we don't think God's sovereign. We should not see the church persecuted in Iran or in Afghanistan and think, praise the Lord, God's sovereign. It's all happening. Yay, yay, yay. No. It should cause us to be sickened to be heartbroken, to weep for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are enduring such horrible things, amen? The the thoughts of the great tribulation to come should cause us all to want to get out of here before it happens, which is why pre-trip is such a popular view. We all want to leave, amen? We don't want to endure it. We don't want our children or grandchildren to endure it. Why? Because it is awful. And what I just want you to know is that you can feel that way and God still be sovereign. Amen? Because Daniel felt that way, and he still knew that God was sovereign. Secondly, notice that Daniel was appalled by the vision, and he did not fully understand it. You see, it's also perfectly natural for us to be confused as to why these events will happen. And it's even natural for us to be appalled at the thoughts of them. We, We should not read this prophecy or read of the great tribulation or read of the persecutions that are going on around the world and not be appalled by them. Amen? They're appalling. They're awful. What we have to stop short of is questioning God as to why he allows those things to happen. Because let me just tell you, we're not going to know that answer. All right? We're not going to know the answer. Let me give you the biblical theological answer. Sin causes death. Remember, God has come to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly, but the thief comes to still kill and destroy. So when we see still kill and destruction going on, that is the devil. That is sin. That's the consequences of sin. But as to why God would allow bad things to happen, that's way above our pay grade. Amen? For whatever reason, in his sovereignty, God is allowing this world to continue on. And I promise you, it's because of his grace so that many can come to him. Amen? 
But in the meantime, we live in a sinful world. and Sinful things are going to happen. Bad things are going to take place. And at the end of the day, it is going to end in a very awful and horrific way that I hope I'm not here for. That's a show I don't want front row seats for. Amen? And all I can do is be appalled by it. I can be confused by it. Amen? But I've got to still trust that God is sovereign over it. Amen? And that's exactly what Daniel does. He says, I was appalled and I didn't understand it. Daniel said, I was upset. I was confused. I I didn't have all the details. And so I I didn't even know what to do with this. And so thirdly, notice what Daniel does in verse 27. I rose and I went about the king's vision. So what did Daniel do? He continued to do what God had called him to do. Which for Daniel specifically, it was working for the king. Remember, Daniel is somewhere in between chapter 4, chapter 5. Daniel, in other words, received this vision before the writing on the wall in chapter 5. What if Daniel had just thrown the towel in? Said, God, I can't take anymore. God, if that's what's going to happen, I'm out. I no longer trust you. I no longer want to follow you. I no longer want to serve you. I'm out. God still had plans for Daniel. Amen? In chapter 5, God was going to use Daniel to put to shame Belshazzar and to declare the glory of the God of Israel. Amen? So much so that when the Persian Empire reigns in, guess who they want on their side? They want Daniel because he represents a God that must be real. Amen? And then God is able to use Daniel to impact another pagan nation, the Persian Empire. As a matter of fact, and you go to Iran, one of the great things you get to do is you get to see things that, you get to see places where Daniel was. There, there's literally a tomb to Daniel where, where many scholars believe Daniel was literally buried there in modern day Iran. Because Daniel had an impact that is still being felt today in the pagan nation of Persia. That's unbelievable, amen? It's incredible. As a matter of fact, when you go to Iran and you meet Iranians, if you can get them to Daniel, you can segue then into the gospel. And you can literally use Daniel to help share the gospel with Iranians because they know Daniel, they like Daniel. And when you help them understand that you serve the same God that Daniel served, they want to hear more about the one true God. What if Daniel had not gotten up and gone about the king's business? Then that wouldn't be able to happen today. But because Daniel kept doing what God had called him to do, then God was able to use Daniel to display his glory. Listen, here's what I want us to do. I want us to keep serving the king faithfully i want us to just keep doing whatever it is god has called us to do i want us to do it faithfully even though we might be confused i want us to do it faithfully even though we might be appalled at what's happening or what's going to happen i want us to keep serving the king when it looks like the country is divided and falling apart keep serving the king When it looks like persecution is raging 
and it's going to get worse, keep serving the king. When all four tires fall off, keep serving the king because God is still sovereign. Will you pray with me? With heads bowed and eyes closed, let me ask you, are you trusting in the sovereignty of God? I'm not talking just about for the end of the age, but I mean in all the little details of life. When you get stuck in traffic, do you trust God's sovereignty? When difficulties come at you, do you trust God's sovereignty? When you're being unusually blessed, do you trust in the sovereignty of God? You see, if we'll learn to trust God in the little things, then it becomes easier to trust God in the big things. And so what Daniel has been trying to help us see is that God is sovereign over all things. When you're taken captive as a teenager into a foreign land, God's still sovereign. When you're told to bow and worship a statue or be thrown into a den of lions, God is still sovereign. When difficulties come your way, whether big or small, God is still sovereign. And even when we think of the great tribulation to come and the great persecution that is being endured today by our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, God is still sovereign. So believers, let me encourage you as I encourage myself. Let's keep rising and let's keep going about our king's business. Let's keep serving our God faithfully because we know that he's in control. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I want you to know that our God is the one true God. He is the one who is sovereign over all things and he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that your sins could be paid for, so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life by his grace. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, I would love to share with you more about what Jesus Christ has done for you. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the hymn of invitation. Because I've been battling a cold, I'm not going to be here to greet you, but this altar is open. You come and you pray as the Lord sees fit. But if you want to know more about how you can give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, and after the service, come and talk with me, and we'll go someplace where I can share with you what Jesus has done for you. But however God is working and moving, Now is our time to respond in faith and obedience. Lord, we love you and we praise you this morning. We confess that you are sovereign over all things. Lord Jesus, help us to faithfully serve you in all that we do because you're our king. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.